Welcome to episode 86 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guest is the co-owner of Defector Media and the co-host of the Distraction Podcast, the very smart and funny writer, David Roth. David, welcome back to Junk Filter. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Our subject for today is the New Zealand-born filmmaker Martin Campbell, a veteran director of film and television. He's a master of craftsmanship, and we're going to be talking about selected works of his uh, long career. He has a new movie out called Memory, starring Liam Neeson, an Alzheimer's thriller. We're also going to talk about his science fiction thriller, No Escape, starring Ray Liotta, which takes place in 2022, David. Yeah, I like that you just said Alzheimer's thriller, like it's an identifiable genre. It's like, oh, I love those. (laughs) The best Alzheimer's thriller I can remember. It is easily the best Alzheimer's thriller currently in theaters. I'd say that without reservation. But we're also going to discuss Campbell's origins in television. You got me to watch an episode of Homicide that he directed, and I got you to watch his masterful BBC miniseries from 1985, Edge of Darkness. Yeah, I think we both came out pretty well in that deal. Uh, The Homicide episode is brief and perfect and uh, extremely claustrophobic. And Edge of Darkness is fucking batty. Not a type of thing that I knew ever existed or could get made. And I loved it. I'm really happy to have seen it, even though I was watching it in like 360p on my laptop. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of hard to see. For my listeners, uh, a pro tip is that you can watch Edge of Darkness on daily motion. Yeah, I think after rewatching it, I'm going to splurge and buy the recently remastered Blu-ray from the UK. Oh, that's cool that it exists. So I remember... Edge of Dark, my entire recollection of it was when I worked in a video store in high school, was that it had, it was the big video box. It was like either two or three VHSs. And it had just a really washed out picture of Bob Peck looking extremely sad, holding a teddy bear on the cover. And it was impossible to tell what it was about. He's holding a gun and a teddy bear. A gun and a teddy bear. That's, yes. The, the, uh. (laughs) <laughs> the two wolves inside every man. It was, uh, and I, so I was like actually kind of gratified just to find out what it was because I walked past it dozens of times every day that I was working there and I was like, no one's going to rent this. Is he going to harm that bear? <laughs> Before we get going, let's talk a little bit about Martin Campbell, who he is. For me, Campbell is a true heads no kind of director along the lines of uh, Philip Noyce or Roger Donaldson, where you get kind of excited because you know that this is a new movie by a guy who knows what he's doing and basically delivers the goods every time. Yeah, I think that's the, which is weird. It's the sort of thing we talked about this before. I mean, I think this is like how we settled on talking about Martin Campbell at all is that like. Knowing that your floor is like six and a half or seven out of 10 because the camera's always going to be in the right place and everybody's going to say their line's good is like, it's maybe something that we are overvaluing now because it is scarce, probably artificially scarce, just given the way that, you know, that industry is working right now. But I'll tell you, like, it's sort of even watching, and we tried to watch some of the, the junkier Campbell stuff too for this. Like, even watching No Escape, which is an extreme B-movie, like Lance Henriksen is the second-build guy type B-movie, it's fantastic. Like, just everybody, it's perfectly well choreographed, camera's always in the right place, like, actors are being funny in it, like, 
no notes. Like it's and it's such a relief. I think the the absence of pretense and the real craft that like sort of is a through line through his stuff like feels more valuable now to me than than it has ever felt. Yeah. I mean, you and I both uh, decided that we were going to do this Martin Campbell show. So you and I went in our respective cities to go watch the new one, Memory. And at your screening and at my screening, when the movie was said and done, even though it was an okay, watchable movie, not so great, but delivered the goods, the audience applauded. Yeah. which And I've seen mm-hmm. good movies where everybody just got up and left when the movie was over. But when Memory ended, everybody clapped, including me. Yeah. <laughs> when Memory ended with a cathartic act of violence, I think it's fair to say, against a beloved cinema icon, every- yeah. <laughs> everybody clapped. <laughs> and uh, yeah, stuck around to. I mean, it's also funny you pointed this out, which I think is kind of a, a funny little gag that, like, the first thing you see after the movie ends is directed by Martin Campbell. So, what you're getting is a bunch of people that didn't know they were going to see a movie until 10 minutes before they bought a ticket applauding over Martin Campbell's name because it was like a perfectly fine way to spend an hour 45. Yeah, yeah. Just a good legacy. Yeah, like I was enjoying it sort of. I mean, it's, you know, I mean, we'll get into it in a little more detail later. But when it was over, I was like, damn, that movie finished strong. And uh, I'm not sorry that I saw it. Yeah, which is, again, one of those things where, you know, that's that Martin Campbell feeling. Campbell started making British comedies in the early 70s. His career goes all the way back to like 1973. He made these cheap British sex comedies in the early 70s. One of them is called The Sex Thief from 1973, (laughs) released in North America in January of 1976 as Her Family Jewels with additional hardcore inserts put in. (laughs) (laughs) What a way to start a career. That rules. The 70s were amazing. I mean, obviously, it's a very bad time to be alive for everybody. Yeah. But the idea that, like, a guy, (laughs) Martin Campbell got just, like, backdoored into being a hardcore porn director because that was the way the business worked at the time. Yeah. But Campbell uh, said that he didn't really know what he was doing at the beginning of his career. Um, He did another movie called Eskimo Nell. And I watched the trailer, which is on YouTube. And the tagline is, inspired by the bawdiest song ever written. So you don't expect a James Bond director to to come from this lineage, but you have to be versed in the bod before you can get in there and do the other. Bodiest song, based on the bodiest song ever written, is the single funniest tagline I can imagine right now. Yeah. Oh, boy. (laughs) I assume that it's a little problematic if it's called Eskimo Nell. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, it's, there's a reason why uh, that film has not been revived and will not be further discussed on this episode of the podcast. Of all the great classics that have been made into motion pictures, no one has ever dared to film the story of Eskimo Nell until now. The Mexican Pete, he jumped to his feet to avenge his pals affront. His long-nosed colt with a jarring jolt, he drove right up a... by the bawdiest ballad ever written, we bring you the hilarious tale of the making of this great classic. Now, the key part, of course, is Nell. And we want someone really sensational for this part. Someone who can really pull the crowds in, like Jane Fonda, Racco Welch, Liza Minnelli, Gladys Armitage. Gladys Armitage? Gladys! Now, she's a real puller at the box office, and she's got big tits. I'm Gladys. Gladys Armitage. Tell me what I'm like in bed. Oh, he's
when filmmakers have um, their retrospectives in Paris, uh, they like to do things like show every single everything that a director has made. Yeah. And when Adam Egoyan was uh, paid this tribute at the Pompidou Center or something, they wanted to show like episodes of Friday the 13th, the series and stuff that he directed. (laughs) (laughs) And he apparently asked them not to. Yeah. So if they do a Martin Campbell retrospective in Paris, you know, a a restored 35 millimeter print of Eskimo Nell (laughs) would be great. The idea of just like a dignified 78 year old man having to take audience questions and being like, well, how did you... So are you how did you guys figure out that this was the bawdiest song ever written? Like what was the process there? Campbell then switched over into television and he directed several episodes of The Professionals and Riley Ace of Spies starring the god Sam Neill. But then uh he directed this BBC miniseries called Edge of Darkness with Bob Peck of Jurassic Park fame, who was cast in Jurassic Park because of Edge of Darkness. Spielberg was so impressed. Yeah. He's incredible in it too, and he he died. He was very sick shortly after Jurassic Park. I think he died in the late nineties. Yeah, he died in like nineteen ninety nine or something. Yeah, he was only fifty three. Yeah, which meant that he was in his very late thirties, I guess, when he did Edge of Darkness and looking a little rougher for it, even by the standards of the way that people looked at that age. Like he looked sallow and haggard, even by the standards of uh, British guys in trench coats in nineteen eighty five. But mm-hmm. fantastic performance, like and. It seems like it was like a real star-making thing for both of them, right? That this was like Campbell's big, big break. Yeah, Campbell basically got the promotion to work in Hollywood from here. He did a a, a legal thriller called Criminal Law with Gary Oldman and Kevin Bacon, where Gary Oldman plays the normal guy and Kevin Bacon plays the crazy man. Nice. <laughs> a little break of typecasting. Yeah. But... I do want to get into Edge of Darkness. It has an incredible performance by Bob Peck and by one of my heroes, I presume one of your heroes, the great Joe Don Baker. The legend, Joe Don Baker. Joe Don Bakering at levels never previously captured. Like, really. And also, this was, again, like, this is a sentence that I've been kind of relishing the opportunity to say. This was also the beginning of a fruitful career-spanning collaboration between Martin Campbell and Joe Don Baker. Yes. So not only is there a ton of like dudes rock shit in this series involving Peck and Baker together, uh, I think there's also some strongly implied like a dudes rock relationship stuff just between like Campbell and and Baker, like as two guys that were able to sort of vibe with each other. David, do you want to take a a stab at uh, giving the listener an idea of what Edge of Darkness is about? Sure. So it is a like... I guess eco-thriller is what it says on the video box, apparently. It is, um, Bob Peck is a, like, sort of policeman in Yorkshire and is, as a lot of people were doing at that time, um, having to negotiate incredible political tumult in that area. In this case, there's a nuclear plant. There's also the mine strikes that were happening at the time are a sort of a part of it. And there's the resistance to Thatcherite austerity, in that version of, of Britain, his daughter is a part of that, uh, played by very young Joanne Whaley, or Wally. How do you say that? Joanne Whaley. Joanne Whaley, uh, looking adorable uh, and like clearly a star, which she would become after this as well. And they, so his daughter is an activist protesting this nuclear plant um, that's near them. She She is murdered by an assassin who seems perhaps to have come out of his past 
And then the movie is based, or the movie, the series, which is six episodes, each about 50 minutes, is him not just sort of figuring out what that assassin was doing there and who uh, the assassin was actually trying to shut up and why, but becoming a part of this sprawling um, sort of government business uh, conspiracy involving uh, plutonium and the mining company and the uh, union that was in charge of the mine, which is now being used to, spoiler, illegally store plutonium by a very sinister American business entity uh, that is about to take over this from a British-owned enterprise. So there's a lot of, of twists and turns, enough, obviously, that like it, when I'm watching that first episode, it's very British, it's very of the time, and I remember having the thought, how does Joe Don Baker wind up involved in this? Because Joe Don Baker, like, <laughs> I remember thinking, I don't think I DM'd you this, where I was like, they're not going to have him do a British accent, right? Because that's not in the Joe Don Baker toolkit. Like he, His thing is that he wears hats, and belt buckles, and he gets out of cars in a really interesting way, but he does not sound like someone that went to Eaton or whatever. So when he finally gets involved, it's this is, again, how sprawling it gets. He is a, a rogue and roguish CIA agent in the UK who is later revealed, like, the, the CIA is involved with the environmental, I guess, like, eco-terrorist organization. They are also, like, Baker's own distinctive... Uh, his, the name of his character is Darius Jedberg, um, so I'll just call him <laughs> Jedberg. Also, I just, you know, it's a great name. What a great name. Not a very American name, but man, a fantastic name to come up it's with. It's like a British guy's idea of an American name. It is. It's like Jedberg. A, yep. It's like very like those like Nick Cave songs. It's like they're the Nick Cave Westerns where he's kind of like never been to the United States. And he's like, one thing I know is they, they all kill horses constantly. <laughs> <laughs> like in this case, it's, uh, so Jedberg yeah. is, is an extreme swaggering American caricature. And yet also like... Obviously delightful to watch because it's JDB, but reveals through a kind of a strange relationship that emerges with Bob Peck's mourning father, you know, provincial cop type. Like they wind up like actually having a very interesting relationship that deepens in the end into like sort of like real sincere conversations about like politics and nature and the environment in a way that you would not have necessarily anticipated the show just mm. unfolds and unfolds in really interesting ways and while it does not end with the the original fully psychotic ending that the writer troy kennedy martin wanted it is uh, a really ambitious and like unique bit of television i recommend it highly it was the time of the preacher when the story began The choice of a lady. One thing that I uh, loved about uh, this movie was how Bob Peck and Joe Don Baker bond over the music of Willie Nelson, a song that spells out what this miniseries is really about. Yeah, there's a, a scene at the end when they're both uh, pretty much near the end of their, their tether as characters where they sort of exhaustedly sing it back and forth to each other that like... Again, yeah. watching it in 360p on my laptop in the worst possible conditions. Like, I found that kind of moving, actually. Like, it was really yeah. a sweet scene. Yeah. The time of the preacher. And then uh, Baker says, you know what preacher means, right? Gun. 
<laughs> fucking JDP. He's not. It is not a uh, an undershaded bit of writing. No. He actually doesn't play it as big as you would expect. Maybe Joe Don Baker to play that character, which I think you can give Campbell some credit for. But man, the writing is really like he talks about golf constantly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The other two CIA guys that he that you see him working with who you briefly encounter are just like passed out wasted in every scene. Yeah. yeah. The um and 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 crucially Joe Don Baker's character is a Reagan appointee. Like he's a guy who uh when Reagan was in power, uh he would send these cowboys uh off to get uh, diplomatic posts. He was mortifying uh the the locals by uh, being such a loud, abrasive, like, stereotypical American. Yeah. Which, again, is... They were expecting, you know, more genteel appointees. Yeah. That's what you get when you uh, when you cast Joe Don Baker. But it is also, like, it's why you cast Joe Don Baker, to give that effect. But also, yeah, there's that bit of it... And again, it's, I think in the same way that the show is... For something that is, like, as grim and serious as it is, for the most part, it is funny. There's a lot of funny stuff in it. And the, the Brits are drawn equally... As caricatures, Ian McNeese, who uh, also shows up in in No Escape, uh, sort of, and is in Ace Ventura when Nature Calls, is really where I think I recognized him from first. Uh, <laughs> but is like a great overgrown child of a British guy and incredibly yeah. posh locutions. Yeah. So the you know yeah the he, British he side sounds like or- Orson. He's I think he thinks he's Orson Welles that character. Yes. There, and he gets a, or, or a little Orson Welles, a little James Mason yep. in his delivery. There's a crucial uh, voiceover bit that he has at the end of the film that is just some of the plummiest. It is Wellesian, a letter that begins, my dearest yeah. Clemmy. Great shit. <laughs> this was written by a man named Troy Kennedy Martin, who's a, got a very strange resume. He, he was a prolific TV writer in the UK, but he wrote The Italian Job, the Michael Caine, original Michael Caine film. And he also wrote Red Heat with Arnold Schwarzenegger, really? <laughs> which I did a show on a few weeks ago. <laughs> is Red Heat one of those ones that's like actually secretly good? I don't think it is. Right? Yes. Okay, it is. It Well, it, it's good now. I did a show with uh, Aswin Subsang on it because he's obsessed with Red Heat. Troy Kennedy Martin also wrote the classic cop show Zed Cars. And his brother wrote The Sweeney. These are shows that I guess mean a lot more to people in the UK. I know about Zed Cars. They sound like shows that you would make up if you wanted to make up a classic BBC, BBC yeah. show from the early <laughs> 80s. Like, well, it's like he's in the Sweeney. He's also in uh, Dr. Talmadge, <laughs> if you saw that one. <laughs> this with the glory days of uh, working in television. Troy Kennedy Martin was very upset about what was going on in Thatcher's Britain, the fear of nuclear catastrophe in the 80s. You may remember thinking that you were going to die any minute when you were a young yeah. child in the 80s. Great stuff. Uh, Great stuff. So he wrote the script where he basically blew off steam. He didn't expect it to get greenlit by the BBC, but they did. And then they put Martin Campbell in charge. And Campbell said that he was basically left to his own devices by the BBC, which is pretty remarkable considering how political this show gets. Yes, which is insanely political. Uh, It's clear (laughs) that he didn't have a, a huge budget for it, I don't think. Although it's like, you know, it's handsomely made and everything like that. But it's really kind of in a way that I wasn't expecting it to be like kind of uh, green grassy in terms of there's a lot of stuff where the camera is very very close to actors and the camera is either static or it is just moving like maybe up or something like that and there's a lot of other things in the frame but it is like very much not uh 
done with a, a great deal of like high production gym crackery. I just it doesn't, and I don't know what British TV looked like at that time. You know, if you're used to like sort of peak television now, where like all the HBO shows have the same production value as like mid budget films. Yeah, uh, this is is very different than that. But it's like as much as again, you know, sort of the limits of watching on Daily Motion. I think you probably do lose some sense of of the composition and whatnot. It's very interestingly made in a way that I don't think a lot of stuff was was interestingly made at that time. Like it's not like a something like something cheap trying to look expensive. Like it's something cheap that is embracing the fact that it is generally pretty cheap. And it keeps accelerating from hour to hour. At the beginning it's this cop thriller, then it's a paranoid political thriller, then it becomes a nuclear terror parable and then it turns into science fiction and the supernatural. Yeah. not to give anything away but uh, the last shot of it is ominous flowers blooming through snow yeah we don't want to spoil too much of it but I will tell the listener that um, Bob Peck drew the line at the original ending of the screenplay where he turns into a tree he said I'm not (laughs) I'm not turning into a tree but it is like it goes right up to the line of having him turn into a tree i mean like it's if the thing that had happened at the end of this was him turning into a tree i would have been like oh all right i guess i can see it i also knew there was something special about this miniseries when bob peck after his daughter has died he's going through her possessions and uh you know he's lost his daughter he finds this geiger counter in her possessions and he notices that all of her stuff has been irradiated and then he also finds her vibrator and gives it a little kiss. Incredible. I was sort of hoping that you would not bring that up because it is, <laughs> we're both going to recommend this series very highly. I already have. What the fuck was that about? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I will, I will tell you, I will tell you that in the 2010 remake of Edge of Darkness, also directed by Martin Campbell, starring Mel Gibson, there is no scene where he kisses his daughter's vibrator. <laughs> Does Mel turn into a tree at the end of that one, or is it? <laughs> no, no, he he turned into a tree on his own, actually. Yeah, I was going to because I just like... saw Fathers too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the uh... but like no one would allow a, a little moment like that, a little grace note to appear in a movie. Uh, Dad's not going to kiss his daughter's vibrator in 99 out of 100 things that you watch. But we watched the one where we did. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny is that scene is in in the same way that all of Peck's performance is about, like, he just looks wrung out and so sad in so much of this movie. He's killing it. The scene is very nicely done. The direction of, like, just basically the way that the daughter's room is decorated is really, like, heartrending. Like, it feels, and they have a close relationship because his wife had died and he basically Mm -hmm. raised her and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's all perfect. And then that moment, like, I don't even know if you can call it like a brick emotionally. Like, it's just psychotic. Like, it's just yeah. really dazzlingly weird in taking you out of the, the moment that you're in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, his daughter is in the entire series because he's talking to her all the time. She's sort of, you know, uh, his conscience or something throughout the, the, um, the program. And that's the sort of thing that sort of winds up kind of being a flop most of the time when 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 ghosts come back in shows mm-hmm. but it was very matter of fact and normal in edge of darkness it didn't bother me at all yeah it, it was nice to sort of see it treated 
in a way where like they don't have to like amp it up and have him be like but 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 you're dead or whatever you know like it was just kind of a, a manifestation of grief that made mm-hmm. sense in it mm-hmm. peck does do, get to do things other than be grieving in it like i think it's really like a showcase for him like he's not in every scene but he's in a lot of a six hour series mm-hmm. and really does a like some pretty fantastic work like it is weird that I know he did a lot of, he'd been a, a star in, on the stage in the UK and like had some other movie roles and stuff. But it's crazy that this is like the guy that I knew as like the clever girl guy from Jurassic Park is actually like a fucking killer actor. I want to talk to you about this miniseries is critique of 80s neoliberalism. My joke when, in my notes when I was at, as the show was ending, was that Edge of Darkness sort of felt like Ken Loach directing the sequel to Mitchell. Yes, it does have. So the Loach stuff was, I kept coming back to that too, because I, again, maybe just because that's my association for like left-wing movies where people have British accents, you know? Yeah. Like getting some real boss baby vibes from this, whatever. Like maybe I should just watch more films. But there is that like, the extent to which this is like a genre thing, or as you pointed out, like three genre things, like in served consecutively. It's, it is all of that, and yet it is also, like, scabrous in the way that it treats, like, treats, like, the, basically every political actor involved in it is, like, impossibly cynical and self-interested. The American capitalists are the worst, but, like, plenty of competition there. Like, mm-hmm. the, the way that the, I mean, like, the union is sort of sold out, the mine is you know, run by people without any principles, the nuclear people are worse. Like it yeah. is and the government is untrustworthy and violent. Like yeah. so there's a lot there's a lot to take in. And that the government knew about um Peck's character's daughter being killed and that the CIA was actually the group that started the environmental activist yeah. group in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just this cascading uh, uh, waves of cynicism throughout this film. But then it pays off at the end when um, uh, Joe Don Baker shows up to this NATO conference in Glen Eagles <laughs> yep. and irradiates, uh, you know, I'll spoil this much about it is that he irradiates the uh, guy who runs fusion industries, the, uh, the American company that wants to take advantage of the privatization in the Thatcher era and buy this company that's storing radioactive waste to create nuclear weapons. Yep. If you were wondering whether the capitalist was irradiated by Jodon Baker touching two pieces of plutonium together, now you know <laughs> that does happen. It's, but that bit of it, you know what's something that I also really liked at the end of it? Because this is something I've been thinking about a lot of late. So it's striking how contemporary a lot of this feels um, you know, just in terms of like the untrustworthiness and kind of like the bottomless cynicism of, of all these different people involved. It is also clear at the end that Jodan Baker's character does have sincerely held beliefs and they are incoherent. They're, you know, grounded in a bunch of sort of like tossed off ideas that obviously haven't been unpacked very much. And he's capable of doing good or evil uh, behind those beliefs, which he feels deeply and doesn't understand at all. Peck's character is too beaten down to really like have 
much beyond like sort of a, a basic humanity as a, like a sort of a palpable ethos. But I think that there's something about that incoherence that is like, that's not a failure of the writing. That is like the highest success that that writing could have. Instead mm-hmm. of any of these people being sort of like stand-ins for a perspective or a side of an argument or whatever, this is actually like, Reaganism, that vision of America, like it is incoherent. Like the as an ideology, like it is contradictory. Like where it even bothers to examine itself at all. And so, like I think seeing that, that is very rare in this sort of thing. I think usually when somebody, as Martin quite clearly wants to do, wants to make a political point, like they're gonna take the short way, you know, mm-hmm. and put the words in a character's mouth. And in this case, it's like that doesn't resolve cleanly because of the fact that like they're so invested in this character, you know, these characters and, and sort of their perspective that like it would actually be cheating if Baker suddenly started making sense or having an ideology at the end of it. Yeah. Which he yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like what's the difference between, uh, you know, a movie where um, a detective is trying to figure out what's going on with his daughter uh, who uh, might turn into a tree at the end of the plot <laughs> And a regime in the 80s that was planning on a missile defense system in outer space so that the solar system could become a U.S. regime. Yeah. So that's the NATO (laughs) bit has some really great speeches. Baker's is great. The actor, I think it is Kenneth Nelson. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong, who plays the American nuclear entrepreneur. Jerry Grogan. Yeah. Jerry Grogan of the nuclear entities of Kansas or whatever it's called. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, United Global Holocaust LLC. Well, the company uh, that he wants to buy is called International Irradiated Fuels. Yep, <laughs> it's one of those placeholder names. He but, wants to buy nuclear company TK. Uh, the, but Grogan makes a speech that is like you see it in bits because they're they're cutting. But every time they go back to it, he's saying something fucking ten times crazier than he was saying before where he was yeah. like you know like the conquest of these outer worlds will be one with our blood you know and then they're and then he's cut a, the three british guys in a car driving down a road and then when you cut back he's levitating and is wearing yeah. a cape somehow yeah. but it's wild good writing though i mean it's like yeah he says for the first time in the history of this planet man will be in charge <laughs> so that's the that's the last argument that the the movie has is basically like Will the environment kill us? Is it right to do so? Or will we break it to our will? Which is not where you think it's going to be at the end uh, for most of the first five hours or whatever of it. But it is an interesting place to end up for anything. Yeah. And for me, you know, like the movie sort of tracks with my ideas about uh, man destroying the earth, which is that all we're going to do is destroy ourselves. The earth will be fine without us. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's which is, I think, like kind of a nice reminder and nice is not the word, but like how hubristic it is. The idea of being like the end of human life, the end of the planet. And it's like, well, it's supposed to be a, uh, like that's an either or sort of thing, man. Like it's not. Did you ever see um, Larry Fessenden's The Last Winner? No, I haven't. I've heard so about it. I think it. it's fantastic. I love that movie. And that is the only other movie that I can think of that actually takes that question seriously of basically being like. It's not like a question of our climate. It's a question of like this planet happening and us doing things to it. Mm-hmm. But it is, that, that's another one that's like a real tasty package, you know, 95 minutes, bunch of weird character actors, Ron Perlman with an earring. Like, yeah, yeah. Strong recommend. 
Um, and I also want to say that one other thing that I loved about this movie was the soundtrack by Eric Clapton of all people and Michael Kamen. Yeah. yeah very Michael Kamen uh, stuff in the sense that there's like the synth washes. Yeah. The Clapton stuff, if you pretend that it's not him doing the guitar things, it's kind of cool, but it is, that is a very 80s soundtrack as well. There's a lot of scenes that are like, Really hard to tell what's going on because it's so dark, and then you get a like, pew, 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 beep, 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 like <laughs> yeah. sending you off into the cut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. They and they really hit it pretty hard in the big action sequence at the nuclear plant, where all those guys yeah. in the biohazard suits are machine gunning them. <laughs> the rubber band had now snapped on all the tension. <laughs> yep, <laughs> like it was becoming chaotic. But um, this soundtrack that they did was before Lethal Weapon. So I guess they they got along so well doing Edge of Darkness that they did Lethal Weapon. Yeah, it is funny that this is like, and obviously Campbell does over, wind up overlapping with Mel Gibson and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, we're, we're like, that's the era that we're in is like that type of strange, um, like even I think like Lethal Weapon 2, I guess like, Sort of had politics. Lethal Weapon, I don't yeah. really remember having anything like that. Lethal Weapon 2 has a critique of uh, the apartheid regime. South Africa. Yeah. yeah. Joss Ackland saying blick. Blick and diplomatic <laughs> immunity. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, really profound stuff. But it is like, I guess it is also still like telling that there's even that like trace amounts of politics can be like, you know, like the film was made in a facility that also handles politics. Yeah. Like that is hardly there at all anymore. Yeah. Speaking of Campbell and being so good at television, he did uh, take his career into Hollywood after Edge of Darkness. But let's talk about that fantastic episode of Homicide that he directed. Yeah, Three Men and Adina, uh, which is the conclusion of a longish arc in the first season. Uh, a child found murdered and no suspects. And uh, in this episode, it's like, I guess, like the hack term of bottle episode. Like it is three dudes. Um, in the box interrogation space in the homicide offices for basically the entire episode. I think you told me that two other people speak at the very beginning and end of it. Yeah, there's there's like, I'd say about 5% of the episode takes place outside of that room. Yeah, but the rest of it is they finally found the person that uh, Andre Brower's character, Frank Pembleton, uh, likes for the murder. Uh, is what they call an Araber, which is a thing that basically only exists in Baltimore, a guy that sells fruit from a cart um, who had worked with the the young victim of the crime. And they basically have an overnight to try to get him to confess to it. And if he can't, they don't have enough evidence to really bring the charges otherwise. But and they've so been working is, on this guy for a while. Like yes. he's been their prime suspect for a while. Yeah. And this is finally them shooting their shot at, you know, as the buzzer sounds. So it is Kyle Secor, Andre Brower, uh, the fantastic veteran actor, Moses Gunn, a script that wound up winning an Emmy by Tom Fontana. And that's the whole thing. That is mm-hmm. the episode. But you were saying before we started recording, recording that Campbell basically took like an incredibly uh, like, cause visually it's, it's a very striking episode for something that takes place in like such a small and unremarkable space. It's very choreographed in the way that I think a lot of his action stuff is. Yeah. He, 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 he and his uh, camera, 
guy uh, basically sequestered themselves in that room for three days and just worked out the entire one hour episode where they were going to stage everything, what flourishes of camera movement they were going to do. Because for about three quarters of this episode, it seems like this guy did it and that they're going to break him. But the cops forgot that they also have breaking points of their own. This is a 24-hour interrogation. And by the end, um, the guy that they've brought in has figured them out and is able to sort of make them uh, lose their minds. It's, which again is like classic TV writing stuff. It's good that way, but it is, yeah. Like, I I mean, this is, there is a reason why shows make episodes like this. I mean, it is like tense. It does work, but the, this was a real sore thumb, like reading down Campbell's IMDb page because he was already moving into the like directing highly choreographed action things with stars in it at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is, it seems like the opposite of that. And I think it really kind of isn't. Like, this is just a distilled version of the thing that he would later get right as an action director. Like, knowing where to put the camera, getting good performances out of people that, uh, you know, like, might otherwise have been able to sort of get by at 7 out of 10. Like, Homicide was great. But, like, this is a scene that's in cop shows. Yeah. Like, this is a thing that's, ha- you know, whatever. This is the 300th version of this yeah. that had appeared on television, and it doesn't yeah. feel like any of the ones that came before it. There's one sequence where Brower is basically, you can, the show never spells it out, but you can tell that Brower is lying to the suspect. Like he's saying, I talked to your fiance, your ex-fiance, or whatever, and you know that that's lying. Yeah. Like it sort there of was- takes the moral high ground off Brower, because now they're lying to him to get him to confess. Yeah. So Brower's character is, you know, was, I think the show's great creation like Brower, you know, never has been better than he was in that. But the idea of, I think like, and again, maybe this is one of those things that, that cop shows have sort of left behind to a certain extent. He's extremely righteous. He has a code, all the stuff that you expect from cops like that. He's also a maniac. Like he does too much, like, and is finally, and this is like, I think the thing that Homicide got right that a lot of other shows, um, probably aren't brave enough to have in there that like his main thing is proving that he's smarter than whoever he's interrogating it's not necessarily getting to you know justice or any of the other shit that you would ordinarily see like it's a it's sort of a game but it is also like it is a a contest finally to like Mm -hmm. see what you can do to get somebody to sign the paper that you want them to sign how did so did it feel dated to you because i loved this show so much i was saying that this was like you know, instrumental in me getting into to movies and, and this sort of, like, thing. And yet, like, I haven't seen this episode in a really long time. Well, you know, it, Homicide is, it's, it's such an influential show that it's hard for me to sort of see how it could be dated. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the dramat- the dramaturgy, of it is pretty contemporary. Like mm-hmm. you can see what an influence something like homicide has been on cop shows that made ever since. And obviously the wire, the place where homicide felt most dated to me when I was watching it was the opening title sequence, which yeah. looked like an episode of Saturday night live, the way yes. that they had all these black and white shots of all of our main characters. Uh, it seemed like the, the, the edgy sort of mid 90s Saturday night live opening credits. With, yeah. You know, <laughs> It is. It's very '90s too. I mean, shows don't do that anymore. Like, I think they're just kind of like, well, who's got the time? Like, we yeah. like 
everybody knows who this is. We'll just put their names up over the actual action. But it is extremely 90s in the way that I think we have this... I'm not going to digress too far here. We have a bunch of packs of baseball cards in the defector offices, and every now and then when I'm in there, I will open one. And the things that people were just showing other people in the early 90s in terms of fonts yeah. and uh, just visual decisions in general, it was... I was alive then. I didn't really notice. And yet, like, you look at it now, and it's assaultive. Like, yeah. it's just, like, a series of really bizarre, contrasting, uh, clashing choices happening constantly everywhere you look. Ned Beatty's not in this episode, which is too bad. I forgot yeah. that Ned... Basically, Ned Beatty was the show when it started. Yeah, it was... So, it had this interesting sort of arc. Like, he was, for sure, the biggest name, him and, and Yafet Koto in the cast... Which, again, is like, is a different era. Like, the idea of, like, selling a TV show where you're like, well, we got Beatty and Kodo. And, like, we'll figure the rest out <laughs> down the line. But it wound up, like, producing these kind of... I mean, like, Brower didn't become a, a movie star. But it had, like, Melissa Leo. Uh, this was her first big part. There was a lot of, like, people that would go on to become kind of character stars in, in film and television. Like, I think once it figured out that it was an ensemble show, became a, a big, um, you know like sort of launch pad for that. Kyle Secord didn't get that kind of career, but I've always enjoyed his acting and I think he does a good job in this as well. It's just a lot of white guys that look like that. There were two other names in the homicide cast. Uh, Daniel Baldwin, who's now a joke. Yep. Star of Cleaver. And Richard Belzer. I, I always, I forgot that Belzer comes from homicide because I associate him so much with law and order that I thought that, um, I forgot that he was a character who was carried over from Homicide into Law and Order. Yeah, it's bizarre, too, because the explanation, like, it's literally, it's the same guy. Like, they just ported him, they put him on the Acela and sent him to New York. <laughs> it's like one, you know, line of explanation in whatever, like, first SVU episode where he's like, my damn ex-wife or whatever, you know, just yeah. some bells or shit. And then he just does the same thing. So that guy's played, this guy that went from being, like, kind of a post-Lenny Bruce political stand-up guy has now played a police officer in like 700 episodes of television. The same guy, the same cop. Yeah, I, I found out that uh, he's played Detective Munch. Is it Monk or Munch? Munch. <laughs> he's played Detective Munch on nine different TV shows for a total of 459 episodes. Incredible. 22 years playing the same part. But, and also the part has never, he has some, there's some homicide arcs where he gets to do a little bit more or less acting. Like he gets to like run around and be upset at times. They really don't ask him to do a lot of acting because I don't know that he can do a lot of acting, mm -hmm. but he is very uh, distinctive. This is also, I mean, whatever, that season of homicide, there's a lot to recommend there. If you ever wondered what a young Richard Belzer looked like, this is the closest you're going to get. Like, the answer is exactly the same, mostly, but... He's always looked like a 55-year-old man. That's the other amazing thing about Belzer. It was close enough to that era of television where, like, that was just kind of how everybody looked. Yeah. Like, Brower and Secor look young. Everybody else looks like they've just been boiled in Cuddy Sark. Yeah. David, can you explain for my listeners what a bottle episode of a show is? Because it's oh, pretty. Yes. It's uh, what I love about this show is how innovative they use the bottle episode. Because most of the time, bottle episodes are budgetary. Like they yeah, make so bottle episodes to save money on the season. Yep, yeah. and then it also became 
in the way that all like television stuff is like handed down in that way where it's kind of like now it's like a thing that you do to like show that you are a television show <laughs> like, signal to the viewer that you are up on this it's generally just an episode where it's a limited number of characters in a confined space with each other and so you don't I mean, I don't have to pay as many actors. You don't have to like the logistics make it seem easier. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, two people on a long car ride, three people in a room uh, trying to figure out if one of them committed a murder, whatever. It's funny. Like, I don't think that I understood it at the time as the, I think it was already a cliche by the time the three men in Adina episode was made. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it was like, that's an, an ancient TV thing. But but I think that one of the innovations of Homicide using the bottle episode is to dip into the psychology of the characters and to get us to get a good look at these people Mm -hmm. and what makes them tick without the plot to get in the way. Yeah, I think that's the part that Homicide always had, you know, there'd be multiple cases per week. They solved way more of them than any police department solves these days. But there was like, it wasn't exactly like a murder of the week thing, but it wasn't exactly not a murder of the week thing. In this case, you're right that it is just like, this is an, an actor's thing. It's a theater enterprise. And so this is like, there's one thing that they are talking about or one case that they're working on, but mostly it is like that back and forth. And as you pointed out too, that like this power struggle across that table for like basically not just like who wants it more or whatever, but like who is going to be able to tell their story consistently longest. It's an interesting sort of tension to have in an episode. When the episode is over, you don't know whether or not this guy did it. I don't know. I, I, I think possibly, but they never got that confession. But I think a lot differently about the cops at the end of that episode, because you just saw, um, how wrongheaded some of their tactics were and how powerless they were finally at the end of that episode. Yeah, there is a lot of that. I mean, that's the thing with the show is that some of the cops are better at solving crimes than others. Some of them are lazier than others. Uh, They're not perfect. They don't even always do a good job or do the right thing, like in the most basic sort of sense. And there is definitely that element of that in in this episode that it's like Pembleton is, is very self-righteous and later his Catholicism becomes a part of that character's thread. Uh, But yeah, you're right. Like not necessarily principled for all of that. Sir, prisoner 2675 is alive. He's at the insider's camp. What is this place? Sanctuary, Mr. Robbins. We've created a new society here, a civilized one. We live under constant threat from the outsiders. He's military trained, you realize that? Somebody taught him how to kill. You have proven yourself a highly resourceful man. We'd like you to join us. All I want to do is get off this island. Let's move on to the movie that sort of put him in the position to take over the Bond franchise. A movie that you and I both saw in 1994 and we both secretly quite enjoyed, even though it's never been fashionable. 1994's No Escape, a.k.a. Escape from Absalom, starring Ray Liotta in his and pretty much one and only movie as an action star. And not bad at it. It's funny. He plays it kind of like it's definitely got the same energy as the Goodfellas performance, like right down to him having like a weird laugh that's too loud yeah. and too sudden and stuff. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's so... And it's not long after Goodfellas either. So this yeah. is basically they took the guy who directed the um, 
eco-thriller series where the guy didn't turn into a tree. And then they took um, Henry Hill, and then they sent them to Australia to um, be abused by sadistic warden Michael Lerner, and then eventually escape from the island. It's it's a fucking incredible movie. Like, it's maybe the most inconsequential movie imaginable, and yet, like, I enjoyed having it waste my time again for the first time in, whatever, almost 20 years since we watched it in theaters. Now, I think that one of the reasons why this movie uh, has a minor cult following, it's quite minor, is that it was on HBO all the time because yeah. Savoy Pictures, who produced it, they had an arrangement uh, where all their movies wound up on HBO. So I think that No Escape might be one of the all-time most played movies on HBO. That rules. That 100% fits. I mean, I feel like that's the... So the other people that are in this movie, just to run briefly speed run this cast, uh, Stuart Wilson, who would go on to be a bad guy in one of the later Lethal Weapon sequels, um, would continue to work with Campbell, another guy, Martin Campbell must be just a delight to to be around, but he's in the the bad guy in the first Zorro movie, I think, too, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anyway, so Stuart Wilson had some prestige. The rest of it is just character guys that were even at that time doing a lot of like straight to video type stuff. Lance Henriksen, Ernie Hudson, uh, all delight Kevin Dillon um, in the sort of role that like you know. We can admit, I guess, that that Entourage exists. That is a straight up, like, a Johnny drama part that he would have had. That that character would have had. The great Kevin J. O'Connor washes up in this, too. Yep. And then a bunch of Brits, uh, like, including Ian McNeese. uh, Yeah. Who does not seem like somebody that would, like, last very long (laughs) in a dystopian uh, outdoor prison. But, like, he's there. Jack Shepard. The... It's a... Like, fun to watch. Henriksen uh, plays the the father of this prison camp and is, like, just swathed in robes the entire time. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a nice <laughs> break from the other things that he was doing, because this is, like, right around... It's a, a... I think there are many periods of peak Henriksen, but this, like, hard target... Like, he was kind of, like, a, a property at that point. But in most of those, he's like a man with an earring smoking cigarettes who's trying to kill the hero. And in this one, he's like a Buddha figure for a lot of it. It's based on a novel called The Penal Colony, and it was filmed in Australia, which, of course, was a penal colony. Yep. So they basically recreated the original Australia in a science fiction version. And it also rips off Mad Max. It rips off the most dangerous game. It rips off, uh, you know, Escape from New York, but mm-hmm. it's all good because it's done with such flair and panache. Yeah, it is. I We were talking about this, and I think in a lot of ways, this is what it would be like if, like, a normal person tried to make a George Miller movie. Yeah. But, like, it's, <laughs> it's well made in that way, too, but it just, it doesn't have, like, in the way that a Miller movie, it, like, whatever, like, Fury Road and stuff like that, it's just, like completely consumed by its vision of the world. This is like, we built some practical sets in Australia. We got some character actors to like run around in them. We're going to bring this thing in on time and on budget. Is everybody ready? Hands in three, like on like team on three. And then just, that's what they do. Yeah. So it, I mean, it delivers. It's also, as you pointed out, set in the year 2022, really Oda's character has been sent to this penal colony. And I feel like given that you saw this first, do you want to say why he's being punished? (laughs) Well, this is the thing. Like, this makes me want to know uh, what did Martin Campbell know and when did he know yes. it? <laughs> because 
the movie is set in 2022, but in the year 2011 in this story, Leota's character, whose name is J.T. Robbins, killed his commanding officer when he was stationed in Benghazi. There's no reason for it to be Benghazi. It's like, really takes you out of the moment watching it now and just being like, oh, wow. All right. (laughs) Like, neat. I'm surprised that the QAnon people haven't figured out that no escape is there to be a rich text for them. They got no taste. I mean, it's just, I feel like if that was, if you showed QAnon people Martin Campbell movies, it would, it would change them. They would, they would give up their beliefs. They would turn into trees. But this is, it is like weird in that. So there's also like, again, in the sense that like all of, there's like trace amounts of politics and all of this. This is a movie that hates private prisons. It's very much about the idea of like the dehumanizing and sort of like aspects of like warehousing people that you believe are beyond rehabilitation, which I think at the time was a pretty forward looking position. Like the private prisons weren't just sci-fi stuff at that time, but they were not as ubiquitous as they have become in the years since. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's what I find so interesting about this movie. Like it's not driving home the point that uh, private uh, multinationals shouldn't be profiting off the carceral system, but we also have this uh, movie that predicted something that would actually become part of our dystopic present. And yeah. it's even set in 2022. Michael Lerner, uh, at one point, he's, he says, I take human garbage from around the world and I reprocess it. Yep. Which, again, <laughs> just you don't have to see the movie for yourself. Just to imagine the pleasure of Michael Lerner, who's still like basically giving the studio boss performance from Barton Fink in this, too. Yeah. Yeah, like really putting some stank on that line reading. It is, yeah. yeah all the actors are are doing the most. Stuart Wilson is doing the most, the most. He's yeah. delightful, but it's basically he's giving like a we've got Mel Gibson at home type performance. Yeah, and it's very good, but it is like there's a lot of teeth. There's a lot of like weird improv acting like a crazy person type stuff in it. Like there's there's a lot of him being menacing and scary, and then him being Mister Funny. Yes. Yeah, he does. That's which again is a very sort of like Mel Gibsony dichotomy there. But yes, there's a lot. He, he whistles a lot in it. Yeah, yeah. strange. Film. And he's but, he's got he's got uh, Battlefield Earth dreads. Battlefield Earth dreads, like <laughs> unusual pier, like sort of like Maori style piercings. A lot of appropriation going on in this movie, if we're being honest. But it is uh, a peculiar one. The plot of it basically is that like Stuart Wilson like leads a, the tribe of bad guys on this island and they periodically raid the um the sort of encampment of good guys who have created a sort of a peaceable society complete with its own uh like rot gut moonshine distillery and (laughs) chore wheel i don't remember you don't really go that much into like what's going on well what i don't understand about this movie is that this is supposed to be uh they're supposed to be doing hard labor but like what are these people doing that is producing any products for anyone yeah that's, <laughs> they seem to just be farm doing local farming yeah which is kind of the, that's the part of it that they don't really unpack you know that like this was maybe before private prisons had figured that because now they're just like fucking call centers or just you know the most odious capital formation that it could be in this case they were like it would be terrible if corporations warehoused prisoners what they would do with them like honestly like it's so dark we can't even think about it presumably they would just dump them out of a helicopter on australia and leave them be yeah that is basically what's happening you've got the bad guys who are like eating each other and then the good guys who have like figured out how to like 
grow barley. But like that is the tension between them. Neither one of them is like clocking in at the factory or whatever. Well, there was a funny part where like there was an incursion on the uh, they're they, they're the outsiders and the insiders are the two tribes, and the outsiders do an attack on the insiders that gets repelled, and then Lance Hendrickson is explaining it to Ray Liotta, and he says they attack about two or three times a year. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you're used to this. <laughs> Yeah, he's been there for like 16 years or something like that. It's like, <laughs> like there is this sense like, everyone involved, I guess it's like just very strongly implied has depression because they're all just kind of like sometimes it happens, you know, like you have a good few months and then someone drives a sharpened stick through you and you die. But that's life yeah. on Absalom. What are you going to do? Well, this is a world where you can die of pink eye, right? Because there's no, like at one point yeah. somebody says the closest bottle of aspirin is 200 miles away. Yeah. It's like, you mean there's a store on this island? Like, I didn't know what that meant. Here's the part that confused me. I know there's no point in, like, uh, kicking the tires on a dumb science fiction movie from 30 years ago for logic questions. But um, this is a question I have for you, David. This prison system and what's going on is being kept from the rest of society. So Ray Liotta's big plan is that he's going to escape so that he can let the outside world know about it. But... At the beginning of the movie, we see the outside world. It's a cruel and blighted desert dystopia. So why would anyone... I'm assuming that if this prison is operating the way it is, uh, it seems to be another level of prison. Like, you can go to the real prison or they'll put you on the island prison. Yeah. I I assume the society is unraveled to the point that nobody really cares what happens to incarcerated people. Yeah. Like, you're happy that they get off the island at the end. But when you see what the actual acknowledged prison is like... (laughs) <laughs> which is basically like a you know alien three kind of scenario yeah just a bunch of people stacked up in a warehouse and periodically the guards make them fight or like they get some sort of weird you know like electronic lashing from michael lerner and his minions like that's the one that is already known about so the idea that then there's like there's another one where like once you get kicked out of that they put you someplace where like Actually, honestly, it's not that much worse. Like, you get that probably the air quality is better. Yeah. And so there is, like, this element of, like, blowing the roof off the whole thing. It's always, it's it's a tough one. I, I think that I've seen a bunch of, like, science fiction movies recently that have had that as their kind of their triumphant closing beat. And it's tough because, like, if you accept the premises of the rest of the movie, or at least, even if you just, like, sort of commit yourself to spending a couple of hours in the world that the movie is trying to show you, like, it's hard to believe that it's going to make a difference. Like, Ray Liotta landing a helicopter with a bunch of, like, haggard British character actors on it and being like, they're keeping us on an island and they don't give us any food and they want us to die. Like, I want to believe that that would work. I'm also, like, you know, again, just, it's not just, if it's going to be said in 2022, I know how people would respond to that in 2022. And they would probably be like, well, what did you do to get sent there? Like, yeah. what, why? And, you know, that's depressing, but it is uh, the world that they create. I assume that if it's a blighted dystopic prison system, that reflects the society that is operating. Right. And the <laughs> one little bit of it that you see outside of that, too, is the, the military formation at the very beginning of it before Leota kills his commanding officer. And it is starship troopers, like just pure fash iconography. As, yeah. 
And so the idea of like going to those guys and throwing yourself upon the mercy of like fucking Johnny Rico. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't yeah. see it. I don't yeah. see that one working out. But it's all good because the movie's fun. Um, David, how did you first see No Escape? Because I actually rode my bike halfway across town to go watch it one evening on Cheap yeah. Tuesday. Like, I actually made a concerted physical effort to go watch No Escape. Yeah, same. Uh, so <laughs> I saw it in the movie theater in my hometown, Ridgewood, New Jersey. Uh, we probably did ride bikes there because we would have had learner's permits, but not licenses. I mean, we could have walked it. It's not. It wasn't a big town. But I, I think we might have seen it on, like, opening night. Like, it was just one of those things where, like, there were, there were only so many things to do. It was, like, the movie that came out on Friday. And we all, like, this is going to make it sound like I had friends that were a bunch of, like, movie weirdos instead of just regular weirdos, which we were. But, like, everyone kind of dug Henriksen. Like, I was a big, big Lance Henriksen guy. But we'd seen, I don't know if, we, if Hard Target had come out yet by then. Probably. The year before. Yeah. yeah. So that was a movie that we all enjoyed a lot. We like would make movies with like a camcorder in each other's backyards, like chasing each other around and hitting each other with sticks and stuff. And we did a version of Hard Target that was basically me chasing my friend Paul. Uh, it's like where I was playing the Hendrickson part and he was playing the Van Damme part. So like the idea, it didn't take a lot, not just because there wasn't that much competition. You know, we were like in high school or early high school. But the idea of just being like, yeah, I don't know, do you want to like go pay $8 to watch a bunch of guys like chase each other around for an hour and a half and then like ride our bikes home? Like it was a very pure sort of like movie going experience. Like I don't, I can't imagine the conversation that went into it, but at some point we clearly all agreed and it was like, yeah, I think I saw it with like three buddies. Yeah. I don't know what it is about this movie. It was like, I have to go and see No Escape. It doesn't have like that huge a marquee, <laughs> you know? No. It's the Martin Campbell, Ray Liotta sci-fi movie. <laughs> also, if you look at the box office on it too, it's like, we are not representative. Like this movie was not very widely seen. Yeah. But the idea that there was like some small group of people who like, they're like, well, it's Ray Liotta and Lance Hendrickson, but it's also the director of the movie where the, you know, the thing at the video store where the guy's got the teddy bear and the handgun, like, yeah. it's that guy made it. <laughs> and yet, like somehow, whatever it is, this is very, I'm glad we found each other. But there is this like narrow tranche of people where they're like, yeah, fucking sign me up. Whatever that is, what you just described yeah. is what I want. Well, whatever, it worked out to this in the sense that Martin Campbell got given the Bond franchise from here. And the other wild. weird outsized hit that Martin Campbell had that you wouldn't think would have been a huge hit was The Mask of Zorro, mm -hmm. um, where he came in to replace Robert Rodriguez, who got fired. And Campbell was actually asked to direct the movie by Steven Spielberg, who was one of the producers. Um and the funny thing about The Mask of Zorro is, again, uh, Sony Pictures pretty much left Campbell alone. They weren't very interested in the production. So he was able to do what he wanted. And then when he showed it to them, they went insane. And they made it a big summer release. And it was a giant hit. It made $250 million. Yeah. And it's actually like, so it's I have fine. Not... It's fine. Yeah. It's very zippy and old fashioned. Like everybody looks great in it. It's like Antonio Banderas and Catherine Zeta Jones looking just as hot as you could possibly look as a professional great hot person. Mm -hmm. And it is in the same way, I think obviously like it's a bigger budget uh, than No Escape, but it's the same sort of thing. Big practical sets, like cameras on cranes capturing elaborately choreographed energy moving left to right or right to left across the screen. Like that's good. Like, that's mm -hmm. just, like, fucking movie making, man. That's been movies for 100 years. So, like, 
the idea of being able to make that old-fashioned movie out of a property like this, again, another one of those things that feels like maybe he's one of the last guys that's going to get to do it. But the the practical set thing is, I mean, it's probably the best thing to, uh, you know, about No Escape beyond the sort of like the silly character stuff. Mm-hmm. And everything in Zorro, like I remember there's a big, big um, sword fight at the, I think at the beginning of the first film that is like supersized, you know, triple size sets of that, but all yeah. action up and down stairs and stuff. It rules. Like it, it's, yeah. he's really like a, I mean, he knows where to put the camera and stuff like that. But like, yeah, there's, a, there's there's always a lot of stuff happening on screen in his movies, which I think is like, and it's actually happening. It's not like CGI'd in after the fact. So that's that's fun mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, and 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 this is the thing that I was saying about you know these these guys who are like the masters of mid, uh, like Roger Donaldson, where it takes a certain kind of director to come in at the last minute and make a movie that's better than it has any right to be. Yeah. Yep. And it is like, like that's he's not phoning it in. Too. Yep. And it doesn't, it's weird because, like, I think Campbell, Donaldson's a guy that we were talking about. I actually met him when I was working at a production company before uh, my senior year of college. I, like, brought him a sandwich that they had, like, ordered or whatever. And he was just dripped fully linen. Like, everything is white linen on the guy. Yeah. And he's a very, he's an Australian guy. He's very, like, sort of debonair dude. And I remember, like, being. You know, I, I spend a lot of time starstruck out there. Like it was, I don't know how many people would get starstruck about Roger Donaldson. That was the kind of young man that I was at that time. Mm-hmm. But I <laughs> remember, like, like looking back at it, like being like Roger Donaldson, director of Beloved. Like No Way Out was a big hit, I guess. I don't know what else it was that like I was blown away by in meeting him beyond the fact that I'd probably seen his directorial credit ten times. You know, in different movies, Species. Yes. Well, that was so that was the actual conversation that I had because I so the guy that was in charge of the company or whatever, one of those guys. I had been he was like I'm having lunch with Roger Donaldson, like you have to go get this. And I was like, "Oh, that's great. I like some of his movies a lot." Yeah. And he put me on the spot in front of Roger Donaldson and was like <laughs> This guy says he likes like some of your movies. What movies don't you like? And I'm like 21, you know, like very <laughs> nervous and this man is wearing more linen than I've ever seen on any one person. It's the whole fucking Chico's catalog just dripped on this guy. And I was like, well, I actually do like Species. I think Species is good. And he's like, thanks. Not a lot of people think that or something. Like he had like yeah. some self-effacing thing to say about it. Yeah. But I kind of did like Species too. Species yeah, was a very too. similar 90s yeah. type of movie. Yeah, it's a lot no, easier to figure out how I got my friends to go see that one than No Escape. But Yeah. Well, it appealed to my lizard brain. What I loved about uh, Species was instead of having one good character, why don't we have six or seven half-baked characters and have them all interact together? Yes. It's like a, it is like a CSI episode. Like, it's just like, and another one of those ones from the 90s, too, where they, like, if you look back at what that cast was, it's like phenomenally overqualified. Yeah. Like, they were like, yeah. Like, there needs to be like, a, there's a doomed British nerd. Is Alfred, Mo- like, literally Alfred Molina available to play that part? Yeah. Can Ben Kingsley play the boss, the guy who has no personality yeah. of any kind? Yeah. And they did it. They did it. And I went to see uh, 13 Days, the Kevin Costner movie. I was like, oh, this is going to be funny. Kevin Costner pretending to be from Boston. That was Boston. the movie that Donaldson but, was in meetings to direct. Oh, beautiful. That was the production company. I read that yeah. script. I love that yeah. script. No, but like I went thinking that this would be a hilarious uh, night out at the movies, and I found it to be a well above average, thrilling historical drama. Yep. 
Totally is. But <laughs> that that's so- the god Roger Donaldson. I can take you behind the scenes on that to a certain extent because they were they were trying to get like they were like fantasy casting it where they were just like who do you want to play like Bobby Kennedy or something and they were like Kevin Spacey or like something you know just like yeah. whoever like the biggest name guy they could get at the time but like Costner the movie did not cost very much Costner was like 30% of the budget or whatever and so like when mm-hmm. it finally came out it was probably better for this it was like everything got like downgraded to the Bruce Greenwood level which yeah. is good like the Bruce Greenwood level is still pretty high yeah, but yeah, that's it was, true. It had like Robert Culp's son as Bobby. You know, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, kind of, it's true. They ran out of money for the rest of the cast. But again, it's all good because it's done with such panache and efficiency. And uh, it doesn't as long as I'm fully engaged all the way through the movie, I'll allow for a great deal of mid. Yep. Same. So let's talk about Memory, the latest Martin Campbell movie, based on the 2011 Belgian film The Memory of a Killer, which I've heard is good, Yeah, also known as The Alzheimer's Case. So this movie, except for the very beginning and the very end, I believe, is a pretty standard remake of this Belgian movie. And I think maybe that was what I liked about it, was there's something a little bit Belgian about it, even though it took place in Texas. Yeah, it is. A, it's a little bit off, like just yeah. in terms of its understanding of how the justice system works and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's set in Texas. It is very manifestly not filmed in Texas. I didn't know where it was filmed. It turns out the answer is lovely Sofia, Bulgaria. Yeah, and it is. Once you get that, is there's a little bit of that kind of like joint. This is Jesse's line to me before he saw it. He was like, "This feels like one of those movies where you're going to see like five production companies logos before the credits start." And it is indeed that it has a kind of a like joint European production feeling. It has a joint international production cast. Uh, features no American actors in prominent speaking roles, weirdly, mm-hmm. and yet like it's. Whatever, it's well done. It's a movie where Liam Neeson goes around uh, exacting vengeance and acting a little bit around the edges. And like, I think it's well established, again, that that's a a pretty high floor type of movie to be. Neeson has been trapped in this AARP action movie uh, world for a long time. In between Schindler's List and Taken was a sort of 15-year period where he was doing stuff like Michael Collins and, uh, you know, um, Nell... And yeah. Rob Roy, which is another great one. And, and and then eventually he was making Taken. And in the last 14 years, he's made seven or eight different movies that are all like Taken. And I'm not counting the, the two sequels to Taken. It's weird. The one that isn't quite like Taken, but seems like it is A Walk Amongst the Tombstones, which I think is fantastic if you've seen mm-hmm. it. Yes. But it is, it, it, um, it is a movie that I think probably suffered a bit because... All of the other movies that Neeson has made during that period are like taken on a train, taken on a blimp, like taken on a, you know, cruise ship or whatever. It's all kind of like, and he's always good, but he's like actually kind of like haunted and fucked up in Walk Amongst the Tombstones, where in all the other ones, he's just like a guy with a fantastic jawline running around with a handgun. Mm-hmm. But yes, he has done a lot of uh, of running around with a handgun this one, it seems like he's intending as like sort of a valedictory to that, right? Like this is supposed to be the last one, last job. Yeah, I mean, but I'll bet you he does a, another one next month. <laughs> yeah, what are you gonna like, say no when they offer it to you? Like it's nice to you know pick up the phone when it rings. I guess I can't begrudge him that. But the the other thing about these AARP action movies that Neeson makes is that Neeson looks really old in this movie, but he's only sixty nine. 
Whereas yeah. the director, Martin Campbell, is 78. Yeah, I was shocked by that when I looked it up because I, you know, I became aware of him in the 90s. And I assumed, you know, that he was like a decently bright young thing there or whatever. He was like 50. Yeah. When he made like so, it, some of that is just me, you know, the age that I am and stuff. But yeah, this is like when you think of it in that way, which again is something I learned that he was that age like ten minutes before we started recording. Like it sort of makes it seem like Memory is actually a movie about being an action director at the age of seventy eight and not like like they make Meeson look a little bit older, but he's like a very vital looking guy. Like he does mm-hmm. not look frail or or ill, even mm-hmm. though he's supposed to be playing that. Even before you account for the Bulgaria factor, which is yeah. you know, which is there in the aesthetics, there's something a little bit uh, peculiar about it. All, the cast is entirely non-Americans, all of them playing Americans, some better than others. But it's like people that I think of as being like some of the mo- like Guy Pierce has done it before and does very well in this. Ray Stevenson is like I think of as being one of the least American individuals alive. Probably, yeah, I know. It took me a few minutes to recognize him. And I was like, okay, so you're asking me to believe that Liam Neeson and Ray Stevenson, both from Northern Ireland, are Texans from El Paso. Yep. And they both have that kind of like... He's like, like at one point, somebody somebody says to Neeson, you grew up in El Paso? And it's like, what? Fuck, he doesn't. Yeah, he does. Because Neeson's doing his uh, no accent, American accent that he does so well. Non-regional diction. Yeah. Which is, I mean, it's better than the other type of accent that, you know, actors say there, which is like somehow he sounds like a Bowery boy for some reason. Like this yeah. is clearly the, the prefer- preferable one. Yeah. Stevenson's accent is slippery. Uh, the woman, I'm forgetting the name of the actress, uh, that is Guy Pierce's partner on the, sort mm-hmm. of the task force, also uh, a British actress, also uh, accent kind of all over the place. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then uh, the actor Harold Torres, who... I saw in um, for the first time in the miniseries Zero Zero Zero, which I liked very well. Uh, he's incredibly intense and scary in that, and is very good in this as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, another non-American actor, Monica Bellucci, another non-American actor. Like the the actual presence of like native Texan speaking people is extremely thin on the ground. Yeah, it was something – see, you were the one who advised me that this movie was actually filmed in Bulgaria. While I was watching the movie, I I, I uh, thought something looked wrong all through yes. the movie. And it should have tipped me off that Monica Bellucci was uh, based in El Paso, Texas. Uh, and looking out the window, it looked like, uh, you know, Central European <laughs> Yeah, I think it's outrage. outrageously <laughs> flattering to El Paso, Texas, I feel like. Like the, everybody's like the homes. A lot of there's a really beautiful private homes in this, like really designy and cool. And like I haven't been to El Paso. I don't want to like shit on it, but it's like like border Texas is like it's just it's scrub. It's gonna be like big wide highways with like Whataburger on both sides of it. Like it is. So the parts of this that are. I mean, I guess it's like you want to set it at the border. Again, there are that Campbell touch, like trace elements of politics in terms of, you know, cynical government officials and immigration and, you know, various other stuff, uh, cartels, mm-hmm. you know, that makes sense why it's in there. But it's like, it's not Sicario. Like, and Sicario it looks Texan. It's ugly as shit, you know, that like yeah. Ciudad Juarez is like a depressing place. Like they get, or visually depressing. I mean, I don't, again, I haven't been there, but that there is like, that level of care is not 
evident here, or at least it wasn't in the budget. And yet, like, it's, it's very nicely done visually. It just has this feeling of kind of not looking right. Like the, uh, or not looking American, which I guess in some ways is better than looking like it was shot in a mid-sized American city because a lot of those are really ugly. <laughs> I remember once uh, seeing Bulgaria stand in for the United States when I saw the dead on arrival De Palma movie, The Black Dahlia. Miserable. That's a really bad association to have with a movie too. We discussed this <laughs> off air, but it is like the rare De Palma movie that like sucks right down to its bones, like just <laughs> awful. <laughs> But it was like, you know, you're in trouble when Bulgaria is standing in for L.A. Right. And so for for this movie to uh, at least keep the Bulgarian content uh, down underneath, like I, you don't watch this movie and go, this looks like Bulgaria while you're watching it. Yes. So good for them. Yeah, you're in this kind of like (laughs) mid-range thing where you're like, well, it doesn't look like Texas, but I don't know what Bulgaria looks like. And it is in that like that wide stretch of real estate between the two of them. I want to also talk about one what you thought about this one aspect of the movie where I have to give it a point. I have to give it a point for one thing, and I have to dock it a point for one mm-hmm. other thing. I thought that it was interesting that this was the first film that I've seen in the Trump, post-Trump era that has drawn any kind of connection, however fleeting, between sex trafficking and child sex trafficking with the detention center system. Yeah. Which I, and I thought that again, was pretty nervy of this movie because in the movie uh, there's a there's a, a girl who's like a child prostitute who uh, Neeson is told that he has to assassinate because she's she knows too much about some um, trafficking ring that's going stuff, on and yeah. a powerful family that's involved and Neeson won't do it which is another you know constant cliche of these movies is the hitman that refuses to do this job because it conflicts with his own personal ethics but. The, I thought it was a little bit bold of this movie to say that that child trafficking systems are operating with impunity from private uh, detention centers. I haven't yeah. seen a, an American movie say that. It's incredibly daring. I was I remember being struck by it as well, especially because it is like it is a documented reality. Like the volume of exploitation in those facilities is like it's one of those things where there's been so much reporting on it that I feel like people have sort of lost that thread or, you know, maybe it's just one of those things where once it's not Trump in power anymore, everybody kind of just pretends that those camps don't exist anymore, but they do. But that part of it is like, which is strange because it is, it's a very big swing to take. It's an, you know, an important, and I think kind of like brave stance in its way to like implicate that system you know, in the sort of, you know, more lurid movie type crimes. Also, though, you can't really say that the movie takes anything like that seriously. Like, it's not really about any of that. But so it's like a crazy little bit to kind of toss off like that because it's, you know, a real hot button thing that is like full of the, you know, like the three or four most deplorable things that humans do to each other. Yeah. And then it's also a plot device in a movie where, Liam Neeson drives around Bulgaria shooting guys with a silencer. <laughs> I know. At once, it, it's a movie that has the nerve to sort of insinuate uh, connections between powerful families. Uh, you know, the Monica Bellucci character is a little uh, a little reminiscent of a Ghislaine Maxwell. Yes. Yeah. You know? Which I think is 
good but call. then you're also got a stupid movie where Liam Neeson drops his Alzheimer magic Alzheimer pills in the parking lot <laughs> that <Yes>. he needs <laughs> and like they have the cliched scene where it's like you know zoom in on the photo of the prescription pill bottle I've gotten yeah. in touch with the pharmacy the yeah, guy's so name is you know <laughs> a real like legit up-to-date, of-the-moment geopolitical thriller that also had someone saying, enhance. <laughs> but I, but so, okay, so I'm giving the movie one point. I have to dock it a point, however, for having Jake Tapper playing himself on CNN. To- well, I, that's on fucking Jake Tapper. Like, I feel like that guy, this is proof now that he will, this doesn't say no to things. <laughs> yeah. Because I know newscasters love being in, in movies like that, but it is so funny. Like, it's not like this movie needed the verisimilitude of the <laughs> no. actual CNN guy. No. There was a scene where they had a reporter for on Texas TV reporting on, you know, the death of one of the characters. And it looked like a bad local TV like the six yeah. o'clock news. And then at the end of the movie, Jake Tapper's on TV with the CNN logo saying, and finally tonight, you know, the, the daughter, the son of the notorious <laughs> El Paso businesswoman and philanthropist. <laughs> what is like the next time that Jake Tapper says El Paso on CNN is going to be the first. So this is certainly the debut of that. Yeah. Time. But I mean, there sh- I feel that there should be a 50 year moratorium on CNN people and MSNBC people playing themselves in movies like. Yeah. They shouldn't. They shouldn't be allowed to do it. It's a taste level issue. Also, they should like that's something that you earn. You know, like do a better job with your shit. Like Wolf Blitzer. Like yeah. you don't just get to like be in an episode of The Good Wife <laughs> because like <laughs> yeah, Tapper being in it was especially especially because Tapper I think is one of the the anchors that takes himself more seriously and takes like the craft more seriously. Like if that was like Al Roker or something, I'd be like, oh, that's strange, but sure. Whatever. Yeah. Like the, but like Tapper's a guy that thinks he's, his job is like holding cower, holding power accountable and like holding people's feet to the fire. And then also when he gets his sides to say <laughs> next to a file photo of Monica Bellucci, he's like, yeah. absolutely willing to do it. But you would think that you'd have uh, ethical issues as a, as an, a news anchor on CNN yes. that you have to be, uh, to tell, now you have to, you're getting paid to be in a movie where you're pretending that Monica Bellucci's character died. Yes. <laughs> it's like it also kind of makes me wonder how much like agency he has because like the few times that i've tried to i have like a friend who writes for nbc and like i tried to have him on the distraction podcast with me and drew a while back and like getting a mid-range reporter to appear on your podcast there's like all these levels of pr people who all had different ways of telling me no you know let's circle back in three months all this shit mm-hmm. so the idea that like that's what it takes to get a guy to talk about his actual beat on a moderately popular podcast. Like what is the vetting process for Jake Tapper on, yeah. on this? Like where the idea of being like, do you want to be in like a Liam Neeson movie? I should tell you it has child trafficking elements. Like, but someone, no one at CNN can say no on his behalf. Like that just goes straight to him. Jake, I know that you're very popular in Bulgaria. Did you- <laughs> <laughs> We need you on location for this. <laughs> we need you. Oh, you're reporting from that conference in, uh, in Prague? Come on over to Bulgaria. <laughs> it's a couple of quick scenes. Just you, Guy Pierce. Uh, <laughs> but it's like Jake. The guy that need- played Vampiro on 000, if you saw that. 
Jake, we really this this movie shot in Bulgaria where Liam Neeson is icing uh, Mexican cartel guys. We really need to uh, pump it up a little bit and get a little gravitas into this <laughs> Bulgarian shot action movie. Would you mind if you're if you're busy? Can you see if we can get Brian Williams to do it? <laughs> it's from the director of No Escape, by the way. I don't know yeah. if you saw that. <laughs> it's from the director of Green Lantern. Yep. <laughs> so that's the one we didn't talk about that. And I know we're we're probably pushing our, our luck here. That's the one that Campbell like it's his one superhero movie and he hated it. Yeah. He he basically said that the worst experience he ever had with studio interference was on Green Lantern. And he's also on the record that he doesn't like the cape shit. He said that um Warner Brothers produced it in DC and that they were constantly stopping him from doing things. Uh, they uh, made him throughout the entire third act, for instance, it cost $200 million and another oh $100 million in marketing. And, and I also read that six flags opened two green lantern roller coasters at two of their theme parks, but it only made $219 million worldwide. I mean, that was, so Green Lantern was the, that's the Ryan Reynolds one, not the Seth Rogen one, right? That's right. That was the and Green Hornet, which, yes, the, those two properties always get mixed up because of yep, their names. Especially by too me. confusing. And then there's Green Arrow, too, another comic book. Oh, that one I don't know. There's the old Tango song called Green Arrow. But the, like, the Ryan Reynolds one, like, I know was, like, considered, like, totally DOA. Yeah. It is weird that, like... Of all the things, it's the one time that you don't mess with Martin Campbell is the one time he doesn't exceed expectations. Yeah. Like, there's a, there'd be a lesson in that, but, like, I don't think he's ever going to want to make another one of those. I hope he makes some more movies, though. I feel like, like, memory, as silly as it is, like, you pointed this out. Like, the guy knows how to stage an action sequence. It's edited in a way such that you can, like, understand where everybody is and what they're doing. Like, all the basic things that you mostly notice when they're absent in, uh, like, those CGI'd sort of like studio product things like it's all there like it's a proper movie for sure silly though it is these days you watch a movie that just starts to peter out as it goes whereas memory peters out from the beginning and then starts to get better yeah it does it definitely ends on like there's a couple of like solid little twists there and stuff like that yeah it's just paranoid and like sort of skeptical of authority enough that yeah. like it's sad. Every one of those twists was satisfying to me because you're basically just finding out like, oh, this other guy that you thought was being propped up as a good guy is actually bad. Oh, also, this guy is never going to do. I mean, yeah. it leads to kind of a fashy conclusion, but I mean, it is like yeah. for what it is, like it, it definitely like gains momentum over the course of it. I had a big smile on my face at the end when you realized that uh, they were giving Guy Pierce an alibi by making yeah. him go out <laughs> so that he wouldn't be the prime suspect. For- Someone in the theater <laughs> made a sound when that was revealed. Like, they, they were, there was like, when I went in there, there was like five or six people in there. People sort of started coming in and I couldn't tell if it was like, so did you see that image of the theater where that was just straight showing Doctor Strange every five minutes all day long? Yeah, of course I did. I saw this in that theater. Yeah. Like in, the, it's a <laughs> like a 30 screen thing in Times Square. So did you totally have to go shit. up a, a catwalk in the series of uh, scaffolds to get to your on, cinema? I was on the fifth floor. <laughs> it was like, you know, all the things that like modern movie theaters have, they got the stadium seating and all that. This was like, not that. Yeah. Like there was uh, like very hard. You could pick your own seat or whatever, but it kind of didn't matter. But the theater filled in and was like, 
it wasn't raucous by the end of it, but when he was like, are you, giving, are you giving me an alibi or whatever? Like someone, they didn't say like, hell yeah, but there was like somebody behind me that was like, nice. Like, just like, <laughs> was like aware of that. <laughs> Which is, so it was like a pretty fun movie going experience that way. I think everybody knew what they were going to see and enjoyed having seen it. I want to congratulate you on your Mets. Thank you. That's very nice. Doing very well. I'm glad that we're going to have a small baseball portion. Jesse and I were joking about how long the last episode was, and it was because the last half hour of it, we were just talking Jays. I've been really excited to see the collapse of the Cincinnati Reds this season, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. So it's (laughs) remarkable. We talked a little bit about... uh, of uh, Phil Castellini, the son of Bob Castellini, who owns the team earlier, who's like this loudish, like he kind of looks like Daniel Baldwin, um, <laughs> who's like the team president. It's like antagonized the fans from the jump this year. But the Reds were like, there's something kind of sad about it. They said that, and I think to a certain extent, you can see this in the moves that they made, that they were kind of going for it, that they had identified a competitive window in 2019 and 2020. And they sort of shot their shot and they got one postseason game out of it in the, the pandemic shortened season. But even before the lockout happened, they were starting to sell guys off uh, and not just like sell them off, like get off of contracts. Like they basically let Wade Miley go on waivers. This is a year after he was worth, you know, three and a half wins through a no hitter. Like he's not a great player, but like it's either you get a little bit of something for him or you keep him because he doesn't cost that much. And the guys that they ditched, because they weren't ever that expensive, it's like when you go back and look at the players that they dumped, it's like, except for Eugenio Suarez, I don't think any of them even qualify as overpaid. They just had a bunch of like professional grade major league guys, and they were like, we're not going to do that anymore. We're going in a different direction. And so the team this year has been like waiver wire flotsam and extremely uh, ineffective and now... Uh, COVID afflicted Joey Votto (laughs) and then a bunch of like young pitchers that they called up who for a while last week I saw a stat that their starting pitchers had thrown 110 innings and given up 108 earned runs they had like an 8.7 ERA which is it's starting to normalize they they won a series against the Pirates they're playing a little bit better um, but playing a little bit better doesn't really mean anything. They started the year three and twenty-one. <laughs> I know. So I don't remember. I don't remember seeing a team. Uh, I guess there may be one or two other examples, but like just not the old worst to have seen a team start like that. <laughs> the Orioles lost a bunch of games in a row to start a season, but finished with like a normal bad record. And the year the Tigers were uh, so bad, they they almost challenged the Mets record. I guess that they were that bad. I think three and twenty-one is like one of those. Like records where like where you, you have to you're on target go, to win to lose 140 games. <laughs> yeah, like the the Cleveland Spiders start getting invoked, or there's like teams that existed in like the 1890s, where you're kind of yeah. like there's like the Syracuse Bridegrooms. I don't know who that is. Do you like speaking of Cleveland? Do you like the name Guardians? Because I do. Yeah, I think it's pretty cool. I think the iconography is cool. Like I like the fact that they chose it for a reason, having to do with the city as opposed to like. If you look mm-hmm. at what the Washington football team settled on, like they were just clearly like, what's the thing? What's an army thing? Like, let's yeah. do that. <laughs> Which, like, the Guardians is actually like, it's kind of cool. That's also a team that is actively trying to be bad. And as far as I know, is in first place right now. 
Yeah. Which is always fun to see just because Jose Ramirez is so good. And uh, yeah, they didn't do the full reds and like divest themselves of anyone that could make them better than planned. Yeah. What I like about the name Guardians is linguistically, it's so close to Indians that uh, it's like saying the, a different version of the same word. Yeah. Like, I think that that was a brilliant psychological decision to sort of just get all the sort of idiots who feel that it's part of our history and heritage. Like if it's another word that sounds like the word I've been always saying, then great. Right. I think you don't want to overestimate those people, but like, you're right. Like if half the word's the same, at some point they're just going to be like, ah, whatever. It's so tiring to say the other half of it that isn't correct anymore. So I saw, yeah. the, I saw your Jays earlier this week. Oh, did you? Yeah. I got out to a game at Yankee stadium. They are really confusing, man. Mm-hmm. What is going on with the, the broader approach there? I don't know. I, I, there was a fun uh, game. The opening day game was a huge event here in Canada. Like they had like a one hour pre-show and they were talking about how this is our year. And, you know, the Jays are really going for it. Here's the new uh, redeveloped Sky Dome. Here's our even bigger Jumbotron. Look, we've got real grass on the field now. And, oh, here's Henry Aaron's wife uh, to present uh, Flatty with the, with the, you know, what did he win? The, 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 Batting award would well, be the Henry Aaron award. The, yeah, but it's basically right, but like the slug. Why not? Slug is it the the Silver Slugger award? Yes, yeah, I was slugger. trying to remember the name. And and then they played ball, and all of a sudden we were down by six runs. <laughs> it's really weird too, because like the players are so they have so many good players, and yet yeah. in many cases, Bo Bichette, Alejandro Kirk's probably the worst base runner I've ever seen. Like I have no idea like what the issue is with them. Like it just seems like they they're not baked yet. And maybe yeah, I've seen them more. I'm not I've worrying been. yet. Did they did they stink the stink up the joint at Yankee Stadium? They made they made mistakes. Uh, yeah. Bichette had a weird base running blunder. Uh, Kirk did as well. In both of those instances, though, it's like it, Kirk I love uh, and I think is going to be good. Bichette is already a star, but he's got that like Javier Baez thing where it's like he's so good that he doesn't need to have like a a really nuanced understanding of how to play baseball, which is good yeah. because he just transparently does not. Yeah. And so he like, maybe it's like pitch recognition or whatever it is. Like he had a lot of, he had one play that was like basically a little league base running error, like a ball getting loose and he was just standing on second base. <laughs> and like the guy that I was with, who is not a blue Jays fan, but is like a little league coach of his son's team was like, go, Bo, run. <laughs> like it's just like some like coach bit yeah. fired in his brain and he knew he needed to say it. But yeah, they, so they, mostly it's like, I just don't understand like why they would have struggled to the extent that they did. I think they'll figure it out. Like they're, yeah, I'm not worried yet. I never, I don't start worrying about any baseball teams uh, until July, but I do at the early part of the season, I'm always interested to see which teams have just shit the bed right out of the gate. Yeah, and the Reds made I it. I cannot believe the Reds. <laughs> what well, was weird, so they started the season two and two, and the interview that later went off the rails before their opening day, which is like literally a holiday in Cincinnati. Like, I think kids get off from school. There's a big parade. Like, so in that interview, like the way it started was him, the Castellini, the team president being like, I think we're going to surprise some guys this year. You know what you saw in Atlanta. Like we're going to have more of that. Then they lost 18 consecutive (laughs) games. David, wonderful having you back on the show. Um, Where can people find you on Twitter? Thanks. I appreciate you having me on the show. I'm on Twitter at David underscore J underscore Roth. Sorry about the underscores. And yeah, most of my writings at defector.com. 
and yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to come on and, and talk about movie pervert shit. I don't usually get to do that. Our normal podcast is about sports. Uh, talking about Martin Campbell with anyone feels uh, forbidden, but delightful. I'm happy to just let this flag fly. Talk about our guy. Talk about some guys. Yeah, yeah. I really wanted to sort of um, do a show about uh, the glories of the craftsman. Yeah. And I think this is whatever. I, I feel like su- sufficiently proved at this point. Like we've shown that. And um, yeah, I hope there's a, more Martin Campbells after Martin Campbell. And again, memory now playing at a theater near you, uh, unless uh, Doctor Strange is playing at that theater. Yeah. And <laughs> Edge of Darkness, I can't say enough about it. I'm very glad, David, that you got into it because Same. I I cannot believe how good and underseen this film is. Yeah, I appreciate it. I, this was actually, I mean, take listeners inside the game. We did basically push this recording back a week because, like, you were so into it. And I watched the first episode and was like, I would really like to watch all of this. But that's five hours and, you know, whatever. I'm I'm glad to have seen it. And, like, whatever. It's not perfect to see it on Daily Motion, but, like, it is free. So uh, give it a shot. At the very least, that first hour will get you that that vibrator kissing scene that we loved so well. Yeah, like I watched Edge of Darkness just to get reacquainted with it. And then I found myself uh, furiously typing to you saying, watch this <laughs> six-hour BBC miniseries. I'm on episode four now. I can't stop. <laughs> yeah, you did a, a post. You like put it on main on Twitter about rewatching 1985 miniseries Edge of Darkness. I don't know what kind of engagement numbers that one got. I can't imagine they're super high. They weren't super high, but I got a few uh, true believers, uh, Good. R- you know, and and a couple of people who took my advice and were blown away by it. So hell yeah, we're that's bringing what, it back. That, that's what it's all about, man. Yep, agreed. David Roth, thank you so much for joining me, and please come back. Appreciate it. We'll do. Thanks for having me. Before we go, just a reminder that we do have a Patreon, and patrons get access to two additional episodes of Junk Filter every month. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. Please like and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And please follow us at our Twitter account, which is junkfilterpod. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken, and thank you for listening. Thank you.